Gracious Father, thank you. Thank you that you are our first love. And forever we will sing of you. When we sing here, God, it is just a glimpse of what heaven is going to be like. When we feel your presence here, it's just a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like. When we see the brightness of the sun, it's but a fraction of your glory. And you give us these great and precious promises that one day we're going to see it all. We're going to experience it all. And we're going to worship you. I pray, Father, we would continue in an attitude of worship as we look at your word tonight. Thank you that we get to return to Second Kings. And I pray, God, that you would give us wisdom and guidance as we seek you in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So last time, uh, when we were in chapters 3 and 4, we looked at the war between Israel, Judah, and Edom, and the Moabites. We saw God's miraculous provision of water. Remember, they dug trenches, and they woke up in the morning, and the trenches were filled with water. And God told the people, this, is not going, this isn't even going to be hard for me, right? This isn't even going to take effort for me to accomplish this. And then we see his deliverance of the people. As, as Moab comes up, they see all the water in the trenches. And the king of Moab goes, look, you know, the, the kings of Israel and Edom and Judah, they, they've turned against each other, Moab to the spoils. And when they come upon the camp, nope, those three kings and all of their forces were ready and they destroy Moab, uh, chasing them all the way back. I can't remember the name of the city. It's probably just in there somewhere. Um, but long story short, the king of Moab sacrifices his son in an attempt to get his God to deliver them, um, which was just awful. And then we looked at some uh, miracles that God worked through Elisha, which we're really going to continue today as we pick up in chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. Now, Naaman commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who was from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. That, that, that was a little unnerving, right? We're going to see it. Does it happen when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes that he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So here's the situation. Naaman is a powerful military commander. 
in one of his raids of Israel, uh, he had taken a girl, uh, a, an Israelite girl, uh, as a slave to serve his wife. Now God was working through this man for the king of Syria, and it said he was a man of valor. But there's one problem. He's a leper. Now, it didn't matter what society you lived in back then, being a leper was not only a death sentence, but made you a social outcast. Now, the girl, she said, has this, this great little statement, and, and we're not really told what precipitated it. You know, maybe, maybe she heard him complaining about it. Maybe, I, I don't know. But she says, you know, if only he was in Israel. There's a prophet in Israel who could take care of that leprosy, no problem. And so Naaman gets so excited that he goes to the king of Syria and asks for permission to go. Well, so then the king of Syria is so excited because wouldn't it be awesome if his top military commander did not have to be a social outcast? That would probably make a lot of things easier for the king of Syria. And so he writes a letter and he gives him permission, and basically Naaman takes a fortune with him, right? He, he departed, and he took 10 talents of silver. Remember, a talent was about 90 pounds, so 900 pounds of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Now, when the king of Israel receives this letter, he announces his expectation that the king will heal Naaman and the king makes two statements. First, am I God? Now, I do want you to remember something. He does not use the name of God here. And all the kings of the north worshipped false idols. The word God here in Hebrew is Elohim, and it just means God. And it can be used of false gods. Your Bible probably capitalizes the G. My Bible capitalizes the G. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he is speaking of Yahweh or Jehovah, which is the same. He probably is, since he talks about the one who gives life. But since he doesn't use his name, I'm not confident that he does. Um, it wasn't long ago that he was rebuked for wanting to seek false prophets. So first, am I God, right? I can't do this. Second, this guy just wants a fight, right? Isn't, just take note, right? He says this in verse seven, please consider how he seeks a quarrel with me. Now, Elisha hears what happened, which I think is pretty astounding because Elisha wouldn't have been in the king's court. So somehow a messenger comes to Elisha. He hears what happens and Elisha sends a message back to the king and he says, send Neiman on down here. I'll take care of this. And then he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. I mentioned this before, um, not long ago, I was reading through the book of Ezekiel. And one of the things that I noticed throughout the book of Ezekiel is the prophet continually says, well, actually, he continually reports the word of God to the people. And every time God says, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, he then says, so that they will know that I am God, or that I am the Lord, right? They will know that I am Jehovah. And he says it over and over again. And here, Elisha says it a little bit differently. He goes, yeah, send him down here, and then he'll know that there's really a prophet of God in Israel. And we pick up in verse 9. 
Then Naaman went with the, his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, on the name of Je Jehovah his God, and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farbar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servant came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So Naaman goes to Elisha, and Elisha sends a servant out and says, go take a bath. Put yourself in Naaman's place. Right? He was an extremely important person in his home. In his home, in his land, right? In Syria. The king trusted him. He was a great military commander. He's probably at this point, right? We know he has servants with him. He's riding in a chariot behind horses. Most likely, there were hundreds of people who went with Naaman. And no wonder the king of Israel was a little freaked out. And, and so he starts whining. Well, gosh, you know, the rivers at home are better than this, right? He was expecting Elisha, I like this part, to come out and wave his hand over the spot and then to call on the name of Jehovah. There's a couple things I want to pull out of this. First, let's take a moment to talk about unmet expectations. Whether we're talking about God or a job or a relationship or a politician or whatever you want, right? Unmet expectations are deadly. Unmet expectations often come from unreasonable, selfish, or uncommunicated expectations. When it comes to God, it's often about us wanting him to do something our way instead of us yielding to his way. Naaman's intellect, his pride got in the way of the work God wanted to do in his life. Now, we can always expect God to work, but we don't get to expect him to do so according to our will or our way. And so I think about unmet expectations. I've counseled many, many couples, and I've there's, there's I've probably never been, or very rarely has there ever been a couple that I've counseled where one said, well, the other, you know, so they just won't do this, that, and the other thing. Okay. Did, have you ever told them that? That you wanted them to do? No. He should just know. No, he shouldn't. Or, you know, he, he or she, she should be, everything I need her to be. 
wow, you married God? Good for you. You, you know, or, or well, you know, I got this job and I just thought everything was going to be great. And now my boss is this and this. You know, okay. What did you do? Have you talked to your boss? No. <laughs> that wasn't aimed at anybody. I wasn't trying. I wasn't blowing a kiss at you, Emil, I promise. Right? We, we do that. But then we put it on God. And I, I don't know what your situation might be. Maybe it's praying for a healing that God chooses to delay. Or, or maybe you're praying for the salvation of a loved one and they just refuse and refuse and refuse and then they die apart from Christ. And you're like, well, isn't it God's will that that person is saved? Yeah, it is. But sometimes we don't do God's will. And then we get angry with God. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Why didn't you? Why didn't you? Why didn't you? So the irony is not lost on me. We're going to talk a little bit more about this as, as the evening goes on. Yesterday morning, I was praying, and uh, we, you know, I mentioned before that we always fast at the beginning of the year. And as we're praying into 2024, I'm asking God for direction in the new year. Um, I asked God that 2024 would be a little better than 2023. Not that it would be without challenges or problems or anything like that, but, you know, maybe that it would be fruitful. Maybe that we would see him at work in these things. And uh, then I go play pickleball and blow out my knee. And all I was yesterday, and you can ask my wife, um, was angry. I was just, I was so, so angry. Um, and then I was going over my notes for tonight, and then I just kind of chuckled to myself. Because, well, I'm asking God for things. And, you know, John, John prayed for me for this earlier today. He was, maybe, not maybe, this, this isn't an accident. I don't believe in anything random. And God has a purpose in it. Maybe that purpose is to slow me down. Maybe that, I don't know what it is. Um, but I'm sure he has a purpose in it. Or it could have been the evil one. It could be. And then God's just going to use it for his good purpose. Whether the case may be, whether it was an attack or whether it's God, either way, he's going to show his grace. Either way, he's going to use it because that's his promise. Because we can always expect him to work. We just can't always expect him to work the way we want him to. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts, then your thoughts. Galatians 2.20 My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, well, why didn't the prophet come out? Why didn't he wave his hand over the spot? No, name. that's what you wanted. But that's not what God wants to do. So then, 
something great. The servant asks this question. He comes to him and he calls him father, which was a sign of respect. Because wouldn't if, if, if Elisha had told you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? You know, what if this was like a Greek myth? And, and Elisha told you, okay, there's a dragon that lives in a cave, you know, a couple miles down the road. You go kill that dragon, bring his head to me, and then I'll take care of the leprosy. Would, wouldn't you have done that? Right? What if, what if he said you have to give more than the 90 talents of silver in the 600 shekels? Was it 600 or 1,000 shekels, whatever it was? 6,000, 6, sorry. I had my numbers mixed up. And you got to, I need more than that. I need, you know, 10,000 talents of gold and 10,000 shekels or whatever. Would, wouldn't you have gone home and gotten all that money and brought it back? And he says, how much easier is he just, he just told you to take a bath. Doesn't, doesn't that seem to be a little easier? And I think this is our problem sometimes. Whether it's a person who's not a Christian and they want to find a way to save themselves or find a way to earn their salvation, which we cannot do, right? But they want to find a way to do something great. And you hear this all the time. You know, if you died today, where would you go? Well, I, I think I've lived a pretty good life and I, and I hope when I get there that I'll have done more good than bad and it'll be enough to get me in. Nope. It'll never be enough to get you in. Never. You can't do anything. That's why Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, right? We are saved by grace through faith, not of works. But then for those of us who are saved, and I put this in here because this is something I struggled with for a long time. And from time to time, it still pops up that we want to do something great in order to earn God's favor or in order to make it so that we think we deserve our salvation. Right? Look, God, I did this and I did that and I did this other thing. You know, now I'm worthy of what Jesus did for me on the cross. No, you're not. Or, you know, God, I did this and I did this and I did this. Now can I win the lottery? Anybody here ever made a deal with God? Now, and I'll, be, I'll tell you something that I think is really interesting. I've made a lot of deals with God throughout my, my life. Even before I was a Christian, I tried to make deals with God. Uh, <clears throat> and there's been a few times where he, he did what I was asking. Um, because it was a really good thing. Um, not, not, not me, but, you know, what I was asking was something that we really needed, and I never lived up to my end of the deal, so it wasn't really a deal after all. But we don't have to earn his favor. We have his favor because he loves us. There's nothing we can do to deserve salvation. That's why it's a free gift of his grace. I can't tell you how many times I've done something stupid and I've brought it before the Lord and, and my father, I, I can't believe I did it. Or, I, you know, I can't believe I said that or I can't believe I thought that. Or He's like, really? Wasn't a surprise to me. And you have to think about that, right? I'm 47. Who knows how many more years I got? Let's say I'm here another 40 years. 
That's a long time to do a lot more stupid stuff. And it's already all forgiven. Now, that doesn't give me an excuse to sin, right? We cannot presume upon the grace of God for sin, to, you know, so that we can sin. Romans chapter 6 talks about that very clearly. But that's why it's grace, because it has nothing to do with us. So we can stop trying to do something great and just follow Jesus. God will never use us for something great until we're content with what's small. Zechariah 4.10 Whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. Matthew 23.11 He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. I think it's incredible. But just the weight that is lifted when we stop trying to earn anything. That's the rest that Paul talks about in Hebrews chapter 4. That the person who has entered God's rest has ceased from his works the way God did from his. Then we have to think about Naaman's humility. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Now I want you to imagine the humility of Naaman. Maybe he didn't really have any before, but even if he did, probably a few hundred people hanging out with him. One of his servants, right, a slave. Not, not, not his wife, not another military commander. One of his slaves says, you know, Master, wouldn't, wouldn't you have done it if it was something great? So he goes to the river, undresses in front of everybody. Now, maybe he kept his boxers on or whatever the, the uh, you know, 2000 BC equivalent of boxers was. All right, it wasn't 2000 BC. It was sooner than that. But still, five, six, seven hundred BC. But whatever the case, he stripped down and he walks out into the river. And he dunks himself under the river with two, three hundred people watching him. And then he has to do it again. And then third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh time. Now, what do you think would have happened if his pride had stopped him on number five? What do you think would have happened if he got to six and he's like, no, I'm just not doing this. This is, this is stupid. And he put his clothes back on and went and jumped back in his chariot. Yeah. He would have never been healed. He would have never seen the work of God in his life. Obeying God and following his ways as we follow Jesus is not about our pride or our self-exaltation. It's not even about our understanding. It's about humility before him. And who cares what the rest of the world thinks? We're going to get to the feeding of the 5,000 on Sunday. I was talking about that a little bit ago. And one of the things that I think is that's going to come out when, we, when I, we talk about this on Sunday is, you know, the disciples come and they say, you know, Lord, it's, it's late. There's nothing to eat. Send these people away so they can, you know, get something to eat and they can find lodging. And, and he says, you give them something to eat. And something that, that really kind of popped out to me, and I think I've noticed this before, but it really popped out to me as I was working on my sermon this week, is that was a command. Wasn't a suggestion. 
Well, do you think maybe we could find something to feed them with? That's a suggestion. It was a command. You give them something to eat. Now, Jesus knew what he was going to do. But they made excuses. Well, we can't, we can't do that. We don't have enough. Now, I don't, I'm just giving you a sneak peek. I don't want to tip my hand for Sunday's message. But when God gives us a command, it's, it's not a suggestion. And he doesn't want to hear our excuses. What does he want us to do? He wants us to obey him. Now, what if he gives us a command that we cannot fulfill? Right? Does he care? He wants us to obey him. What if he gives us a command that's going to cause us to drop all of our pride and to humble ourselves? What do we do? Yeah, we obey him. When we did, a, I did a message quite a while ago, um, and I just remember uh, the state, one of the a statement that I made that I think I borrowed from somebody. But the statement was that we have to we have to learn to say yes before we know the question. That's what Isaiah did in chapter six. Who will go for me? Who will I send? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. He didn't say, where do you want me to go? He didn't say, what do you want me to do when I get there? He didn't say, how am I going to pay for it? Or None of that. Who's going to go? I'll go. No. Where are we going? He didn't care. He just said yes. And I think it's pretty crazy that the amount of humility that Naaman had to show. Verse 19. 15. No, verse 15. We'll read through verse 19. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him, and he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he, and this is Elisha, said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth. For your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing, may Jehovah pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimon. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may Jehovah please pardon your servant in this thing. And he said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. Now that short distance is going to come into play in the next verse. So after being healed, he goes back and he goes, I'm going to give you money. And Elisha says, nope, I ain't taking it. And he urges, come on, let me give you money. Nope, I'm not taking a thing. And then in that very moment, Naaman converts to Judaism, which I think is pretty cool. He says, all right, well, then I have a favor. Can I take two mule loads of dirt? Because he wanted to offer sacrifices. He wanted to worship Jehovah, but he didn't want to do it on Syrian land. He wanted to do it on Israel. Israeli land. And well, the only way he could do that was to take some with him. And he says, you know, please pardon me when I help my master go worship his false god, but I know there's only one God and he's the God I'm going to worship. I will be very honest. I think we're going to see Naaman when we get there. Okay, that's not the person I'm going to be looking for at first, but eternity is, you know, a long time. 
I think at some point in time, as we're wandering the streets of gold, we're going to see this Syrian general walking around in heaven because he believed. And this is just another example of God's amazing grace. In John 15, 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Now consider Naaman. We don't know how long he had leprosy, but he had leprosy. That couldn't have been an accident. God had a purpose in it. And, you know, I... We don't always get to see it like Naaman got to see it. But I think it's amazing that God chose this man from a foreign nation, a man who was leading military campaigns against Israel and taking Israelites as slaves, right? But we're told he was serving God. Gives him leprosy just so he could save him. That's my guess. And after he makes his appeal to Elisha, Elisha says, yeah, go in peace. And I love, honestly, I really think we need to start using the word shalom much more often. As you know, as you watch The Chosen, they often say uh, shalom, shalom. They say it twice. And uh, I love the episode where um, uh, Peter's working with uh, the centurion. And, and there's, he goes, why do you say that? Or why do you say it twice, right? He goes, it means peace. Why do you say it twice? And, and Peter's like, well, so they have extra peace or something like that, you know, is a simple answer. But, uh, but shalom, it, it's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing word. It, um, it means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. It also means that you want the person to be well, happy, whole, to be prosperous and safe. Right? The idea of peace here is so much more than, you know, the old, the old hippie days, peace, or give peace a chance, right? This is not simply speaking of the absence of conflict. It is so much more than that. Verse 20. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master is spared name in the Syrian. Why not? while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. You know, don't swear by the name of Jehovah when you're going to do something wrong. So Gehazi pursued Naaman, and when Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him and said, All is well. And he said, Oh, all is well. My master has sent me, saying, Indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophet have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. So Naaman said, please take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags and two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants. And they carried them on ahead of him. Now, when he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house. He hid them. Then he went 
Then he let the men go, and he departed, and he went in and stood before his master. Elisha said to him, Where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, I, I didn't go anywhere. Your servant did not go anywhere. <clears throat> then he said, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyard sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out of his presence, leprous, as white as snow. Now I want you to consider something about Gehazi. When Elijah came back, right, he, he uh, executed all the prophets of Baal, uh, uh, Jezebel threatened to kill him and he left and God spoke to him and, and gave him this time of like restoring and he brings him back. And one of the first things he does when he brings him back is he throws his mantle over Elisha and Elisha becomes his servant. Elisha then served Elijah for the purpose of replacing him as the prophet to Israel. That was what Gehazi was doing. He was serving Elisha so that when Elisha died, Gehazi could replace him as a prophet to Israel. Right? He, he, was, he was in a primo spot. Right? There were probably hundreds, right? We talked about the schools of the prophets a while ago. There were probably hundreds of prophets that would have given just about anything to be in Gehazi's place, to witness the miracles Elisha was doing to be training up under the prophet to Israel so that they could then take his place. But Gehazi wasn't satisfied with that. And he wanted a payday. Not the, the caramely peanutty candy bar. That wasn't there yet. And he was dumb enough to think that Elisha wouldn't find out. So he comes in, and I love the question as it showed that God had revealed to Elisha the motives of Gehazi. You know, where did you go? I didn't go anywhere, really. Didn't my heart go with you when you ran after Naaman and he got out of the chariot and gave you a bunch of stuff? <gasps> Could you just imagine the look on his face, right? Just confess it. Where did you go? You know what, master, I'm sorry. I got greedy and I went after him and I asked for money and I told a lie when I did it. No, I, I, didn't, I didn't do anything. I didn't go anywhere. What are you, what are you talking about? Nope. And not only that, but he sees his motives, doesn't he? Is it time to receive money and clothing, olive groves, vineyards, sheep, auction, male and female servants? Because I'm guessing what Gehazi was thinking in the back of his mind was not that he was going to put this in the bank and, and collect interest, but maybe he was going to buy an olive grove so he would, he would be set up or a vineyard of some kind. And so he was going to buy his own servants to take care of those things. But it was his greed. 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, this does not say that money is the root of all evil as some people tend to take this verse. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Right? Money in and of itself is not evil. If I had any money, I don't, I don't think I have any money in my wallet, right? But if you took out a $20 bill, right? It's a, it's a piece of paper, right? It, it, it's meaningless, right? I can go exchange it for chicken sandwich and french fries at McDonald's, 
but it's, it's a piece of paper in and of itself. It's not evil. Now, what happens if I turn it into an idol and all of a sudden I love that 20 bucks more than I love my wife? Okay, it would take a lot more money than that to even be tempting, but that's when it becomes a problem. That's why First John, or John tells us in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There's nothing wrong with having money. There's, there's nothing wrong with, with spending money. What's wrong is when you love it and it becomes an idol. Now, God has called us to be good stewards over our finances, just like he's called us to be good stewards over everything else that he's given us. And, and so we don't need to be wasteful and foolish with it. But it doesn't change. that money in and of itself is, is nothing. But when we turn it into some sort of idol, then he looks to the motive. Is this why we're here, Gehazi? Are we here so we can, we can heap up large sums of money and land and servants? No, that's not why we're here. In Matthew 10, 8, Jesus told his disciples, which includes you and I, freely you have received, freely give. All right, everything that we have from God is a gift from God. All of it. And all of it's his. And what does he want us to do with it? And I'm not just talking about material things, you know, whether it's, it's a gift or it's a talent or it's uh, just of your time or your service or whatever. He gave it to us, so we give it away. Right? We didn't pay for salvation, so we share it with others. We didn't pay for forgiveness, so we forgive others. Right? I could keep going. Next week, we'll see one of the greatest accounts of Elijah's, Elisha, sorry, Elisha's life. I have not done that as many times as I thought I would so far, right? But we're not done with Elisha yet. Uh, where the army sent after him in Dothan. Um, and he is guarded by an unseen army that is greater. It's so, so cool. Um, I am of the opinion that if God were to open our eyes to what's going on around us, it would freak us out a little bit. Right? We, we have, there, there is a dimension that we do not see that from time to time we may experience in some way, but we don't see it. And I don't want to. I don't want to. Remember when Daniel uh, was praying and, and the angel, uh, Gabriel, shows up and he said, you know, that I, I spent, as soon as you prayed, I was dispatched to bring you the answer. And I've spent the last 21 days fighting with the prince of the power of Persia. Michael had to come help me so I could finally deliver the message. That gives us insight into the spiritual realm that we are, we are just so ignorant about what's going on around us. And I think blissfully ignorant. I don't want to know. I don't, I don't want to see it. I really don't. Um, that's next week. Let's pray. Father, help us to love and to serve you as we love and serve those around us. Help us not to focus on the things of the world, but to seek you, to seek your righteousness and your kingdom first. Father, help us to yield ourselves to your will, to rest in the fact that you're going to take care of everything. And, and whether the enemy attacks us or whether you allow something to
to teach us or to try us. Whatever the case, you've promised us that you'll work all things for good. You promised us that the work you've begun in us, you will complete. And so, Father, we trust you with our lives and our situations that you would use them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.